Hi listeners, I'm Lisa, the founder of Maxine VR and the host of Maximize Mental Health. This podcast is for Gen Z and everyone who wants to talk about mental health, struggles and everyday problems. Every week we're inviting guests who are sharing their personal stories. Join us for casual conversations between our co-hosts Barbara and Ryan and our weekly guests who are breaking taboos and stigma around mental health. Welcome to Maximize Mental Health. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Maximize podcast for Gen Z. I'm your host, Ryan Michael Hennon, and joined here today by Vivian McKinnon, qualified trauma therapist and founder of the first flotation center in Northern Ireland. Vivian, welcome to Maximize. How are you? Thank you. Yeah, I'm great. Thanks. Brilliant. brilliant. So what, obviously, whenever most people hear like flotation therapy and what it can do for people who have experienced, you know, extreme trauma, they might think it's a bit esoteric and like they wouldn't really know much about it because I'm sure it is, it's quite niche. What do, what, explain for those who are unfamiliar, what, what is flotation therapy and how is it so helpful for people who have been through, you know, serious trauma in their life? Wow, Ryan, that's some question. And the thing is, float therapy now has so much research behind it in relation to post-traumatic stress disorder, in relation to anxiety and stuff. So, Flotation involves 25 centimetres of body temperature water and half a tonne of Epsom salt. So in this much water, you have a mass of salt. What happens is when you then lie in the water, the salt, it looks like a, it looks like a, a liquid. It feels like a liquid, but it's actually a solid because there's so much salt. <clears throat> so when you lie back, the salt naturally allows your body to rise to the top of the water. Now, what happens there in relation to us and our experience is the subconscious mind then goes, what, what, how is this happening? What, what, what is going on? So while you're lying there and you're being supported and held, the water is the same temperature as your skin, which is the same temperature as the air. So it's quite a controlled environment. Within about five, ten minutes, what happens is your blood pressure, your heart rate and your pulse will all start to stabilise, all start to come down to exactly where it should be for you. But that's no textbook like 80 over 120 or, you know, however many beats per minute. It's your body working at its optimal levels. Again, within about five, ten minutes, you might start to feel like you're spinning. You might start to feel like you're floating along a river. But this is simply the subconscious mind going, hang on, where do I end in this environment begins? Am I like, So you start to become one with the whole thing. W- within about maybe sort of 20 minutes, it allows for the... Oh, allows within about 20 minutes it allows for the the equilibrium of the system but then the 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 nervous system the thought process we've found through research that through fmris and eeg scans that it starts to decrease activity in the part of the brain that houses the fight or flight and starts to decrease activity more importantly in a part of the brain called the default mode network what this means is that it allows for the body and the mind to just start to become in unison. So you're able to kind of, if you're working on something, you're able to kind of pull down one thought and sit and kind of go, well, actually, what did I make this mean? What has this? Sorry, Ryan, I'm really sorry. Give me a wee minute because I've just, um, the dogs, somebody's came in the door. No worries. Sorry about that. No worries. <laughs> always typical when you're in the middle of doing something. Oh, no, no worries at all. So it allows for this real deep state of relaxation 
allows for the digestive system to settle, the lymphatic system. So it starts to allow for a detox of the system. So any, you know, toxins, any, you know, alcohol, any drugs, anything like that, it just because it speeds up the metabolism, allows that to go through your system a lot quicker. So basically it's allowing the body and the mind to just to detox, to rest, to repair, recharge in about in the space of one hour to an hour and a half. So anything between 60 and 90 minutes, the brain will produce the same endorphins in the space of one hour as it would in about five hours sleep. So that's not to say it's it won't replace sleep, but it washes the brain in the same way, which means that it starts to reset what's called your ultradian rhythm. And your ultradian rhythm is your left brain, right brain, left brain, right brain. And once you reset your ultradian rhythm, you reset your circadian rhythm. Now, people who are living with mental health difficulties usually are either oversleeping or can't get to sleep. So this really starts to reset that whole system. So allows for the settling of what's happening for you at that moment in time. Also in the float, we say to people, do you know, try and remain as still as you can. Don't touch your hands. Uh, sorry, don't touch your face with your hands. Don't touch your eyes. Don't touch your nose. If you have an itchy nose, just recognize that it's there and give it the recognition. Can you, you know, I know I've got an itchy nose right now, but I'm choosing to just relax. And what that does is it teaches you that when in life you have these minor irritations, that if you just sit with them and you just work your way through it, that you can get to the other side of it without having to be activated without having to, you know, move to action or to do anything. And it's that real understanding that when we can kind of keep ourselves present and just be with what's happening, then we start to create this really emotional intelligence, but not even just an emotional intelligence, a somatic intelligence where we're able to kind of, we're able to understand what's happening in our body. We're able to understand the messages that happen from us. And people who have been impacted by experiences or events they're always either worrying about something happening in the future or ruminating about something that's happened in the past. So the float's just a really good way of keeping you in the present moment and then teaching you that you can go through, if you go through life like that, most things become a lot more manageable. Thank you so much for that wonderful answer. I think that's all so, so fascinating. I think it's kind of whenever you hear, you hear so much talk now about living in the present moment. And it's really, really interesting what you said there because a lot of like the, the techniques for getting into the present moment, so like meditation, for example, like that, they can, you know, they, they can be very abstract for a lot of people. So there's a lot of philosophies that talk about living in the, the present moment and all. But this is actually a somatic way of getting getting someone into the present moment. And I, it makes total sense to me because say if you're out swimming, like whenever you're out swimming in the sea or whatever, you've no choice almost to but to be in the present moment because you can't be thinking away whenever you're in deep water. You know, you need to sort of, and, that, and, that and, and also, the, also the the impact of cold water, the impact of the sea, you know, starts to instantly, starts to instantly bring down your nervous system, so puts you into that parasympathetic state where you're kind of like, and you have to focus on your breath, and you have, and it's really difficult to be worrying about something or stressing about something. And in the float, what happens is it activates the lymphatic and the digestive system, so it starts to break down any toxins that are in the body and any lactic acid so 
even for people, you know, who, you know, if you're living with fibromyalgia or arthritis or sports injury or trauma and you're constantly tight and tense, then, you know, you're, you're, you become sore because your, your, your muscles are storing lactic acid. If you're a sports person and you're constantly pushing your body to the max, you, you know, you're producing a lot of lactic acid and the float allows that for that, for that to dissipate as well. So there's so many benefits in, in relation to mental and physical health. But for me, it's the spiritual element. It's the, you know, just like we all know, like you can see from the outside of you, you have arms, you have legs, you have a head. Do you know, the very nature that you're human means that inside of you, you have your major organs, you have blood, you have veins, you have capillaries, you have a brain. But you're more than that because there's an authenticity in you. There's a, there's a spiritual element. And by spiritual, I don't mean religion. I just mean that that thing that's that's more than who you are physically, more than who you are visually, that's that, that self. And when you're in the float, that interpersonal connection, that ability to, to be with who you are, and, and I suppose, you know, practice self-love, practice self-appreciation, to be able to just lie there without having access to that part of your brain that's constantly like, and for me, the very first time I ever floated, I sat for the first, I don't know, well, first of all, when I went to float, it was a pod and it's like a coffin-like structure. And I was living with anxiety and panic at the time. And I remember standing going, <laughs> not on your nelly I am not getting in there like I had had a near-death experience years before and I was like I vowed back then I wanted to live why would I climb in a coffin-like structure and then the voice in my head was like oh, get over yourself and give it a go and I, and I got into the water and I closed the lid and I was thinking oh I'm within about maybe the first five ten minutes my head was like why are you doing this? What are you up to? You should be in Tesco's. You should be, there's a million things you could be doing. Five, four, three, two. What's the words to that song again? What did you do with these shoes? Remember these shoes you had when you were about 15? You loved them. Where did you, are they in your dad? What's in the attic? And then boom, silence. And I was like, where did it go? So that constant chatter just had completely gone. So when I opened Hydroease, I thought, you know, I want to break down as many barriers as I can. I came out of that float that first time and said to the woman who owned the float centre, like, oh my goodness, because I'd had this epiphany, I'd had this vision of bringing this therapy to people, of having a float centre, of had a vision of me on a stage talking to loads of people. And I was kind of going, could that really be me? Could it? like?" So I remember getting out and going and saying to the woman who owned the float centre, like, oh my God, I just had this this huge experience in there and this happened and that happened. And, and she said, yeah, yeah, it's a lovely spa treatment. And I said, that's not a spa treatment. Said, that's a mental health intervention. Like I have never felt like this. I have li I've lived all my life with childhood trauma. I live with panic. I live with all these things that I have to daily, you know, talk myself out of and it's all, and it's all gone. So when I decided to open Hydroes, you know, after I left there and then I was in college and university and done all this studying and, you know, worked with some of the greatest minds in the field of therapy, the field of trauma therapy today, I thought, you know, I want something that, you know, like, I don't want people to be put off by the fact that it's a coffin-like structure that you have to climb in. I don't want people to be put off by the fact that it's dark on the inside. I don't want people to be put off by the fact that it's completely silent and all sensory stimulation is, is completely restricted. So when I opened for Hydroes, I got uh, float cabins made. So these cabins are six feet by eight feet and they're seven feet in height. They are big enough for two people. 
There is speakers added under the water. So if people want to listen to podcasts or want to listen to maybe, you know, different types of, you know, Hertz therapy or want to listen to different, you know, different interludes of music, I had colour therapy added. So if people want to sit while the light transcends to give them something, because not everybody's brain is able to, you know, to go to that place of relaxation like that. And for some people that can be scary, especially people who've experienced trauma because they're constantly, they're working at a hypervigilance. They're working at a higher state. Their nervous system is, is, is pretty much constantly activated and sympathetic. If you then go, right, I'm going to plunge you into mass relaxation, complete rest. And, but there's a part that they've developed over the years to keep them safe that goes, what? Oh my goodness, we can never, you, you're going to put me into rest and relaxation. What if something happens? The sky could fall in. People, I could be, I could be kidnapped. I could be shot. I could be like all of these different things. So for some people, it's about a real gentle, you know, kind of guiding in process. For other people who have a well-established well meditation practice, it can be, you know, it can really take that practice to a much deeper level. But all in all, it's something that is, you know, this world has gone a bit mad in the last while, you know, over this last 30, 40 years. Everything's about technology and convenience. Everything's about getting it now. and get. So if we want to take time out from the world and take time out for ourselves, we want to do it now. We want to be able to get into a deep state really quite quickly. And flotation, flotation offers that because it's almost like it's a space where you can go and you can say, right, the world's going to stop for me for an hour. I'm just going to step off. I'm going to recharge. I'm going to rest, repair, rejuvenate, and then I'll come back. So it's just, it's just, I think it's just the perfect antidote to modern life. We're not supposed to live the way we live. Everything's just so, and our nervous systems and our bodies and our minds really struggle because, you know, if you were to go back in time, you know, like, Einstein, if you were to go back to the Victorian times, if you were to go right back to, you know, when Jesus walked the earth, we've not changed. We still all have a head, two arms and two legs. We still all have a beating heart. We still all breathe the same way. But our environment has changed massively. And we don't get wheeled in every couple of hundred years and have all our software updated. Like it's just, it's just not, like our fingers prune when we go into water for too long. And that's part of our evolution to help us to catch fish and climb rocks and like I don't know about you Ryan but I don't think I've ever had to catch fish with my bare hands and climb rocks to get back home again not in my lifetime anyway but my body's still equipped for it so our bodies and our minds are really struggling with what's happening in this you know in this last as I say 40-50 years and flotation is just the perfect antidote for that. Wonderful thank you so much so beautifully said I think um I completely agree with everything you said there I think you are completely right in terms of physiologically, we're really, we've really been the same for the last almost 200,000 years. And there's been a lot of inventions in that time that have just changed the, the scope of humanity completely. So yeah. even if you even move beyond modern technology, you know, likes of fire, the wheel, agriculture, all of that's put us on the path that we are now, almost mm -hmm. in a way. And that's further domination over the natural world. Like it can feel like sometimes the domination over the natural world is almost part of being human in some ways and that uh, unfortunately that is that's really something i struggle to deal with you know because it almost feels like physiologically we're meant to 
you know, carve out our habitat, you know, and I compete a lot of other species as well, like other species are, you know, if you go into the Nile River, for example, and you try and negotiate with a, a male hippo that I think uh, should have a bit of this territory, it's chances are it's not going to go too well. And I think there's, there's there's part of that in us as well. You know, that's the truth. Like, I think we do want to, to, to we're probably, we're you- looking to, yeah, yeah, we're looking to like extend kind of that reach towards the cosmos now as well with rockets you know we want to colonize mars the moon you know it's just never going to end so i completely agree with you and the flotation i agree with the point that i really 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 agree with is that it is the perfect antidote to modern life when i was reading about it, it's kind of like because we're so like a circuit board now it's like you know but now you're in this space you've nowhere to go it's just you there in the present moment and now you're engaging with that deep animal self almost in a way mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it can be a real, I mean, I remember about four years ago, we had twins in. And as I say, our cabins are big enough for two people because my thinking was people who are living with trauma, real difficulties, maybe going places themselves or maybe agoraphobic, maybe have social anxiety. There's lots of different things that are involved in that sort of spectrum of experience. And, And these two girls came in and they floated. And one of the things that flotation is kind of said to be similar to is the experience in the womb. And these two girls came in and they came back when they came back out. And I said, well, ladies, welcome back. How was that? And the first one, she said, oh, it was so lovely. It was just, you know, within 10 minutes, I could feel my shoulders relaxing. And and the other girl says, yeah, yeah, it reminded me of being in the womb. And I looked at her and I went, you can remember being in the room. And her sister said, she's a weirdo. She comes out with stuff like that all the time. But this other girl, you know, so so one twin was obviously still really connected to that, 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 that thing that's bigger than any of us, whether it's the universe, the cosmos, whatever it is, she was still, she was still able to recall so many things. And I was just like, that must have been some experience for the two of them in that water themselves again back to that where it where it kind of all started but I mean going back to what you're saying about you know we've we've claimed so much of this land even you know I was talking to a taxi driver this morning coming back from going to the airport from in Exeter and he was saying that he'd been chatting there'd been a couple of Americans in the cab just last night his last thing last night and they had seen the the big cathedral in Exeter and they had all these things and they were talking about, you know, our country's only been around since 17 whatever and our country's only been around. And he said, I really had to stop myself from saying, hang on, the Native Americans were there well before that. Do you know, and you look at how these indigenous tribes still live and how they have elders and the respect that we have for people that are older than us and how the this the success of them is is to do with that connection is to do with the you know the 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 the, the tribes and the you know the the generations of family and and we've kind of we've kind of lost that about I think in the Western world we've really you know it's became very individualistic and 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 again you know there's people moving all over the world all the time and and that's fantastic it's great to see the movement of people. But what that also does is 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 dilutes, you know, the, the richness of, of these places. And when you even look at, you know, the emergence of the kind of fashionability of, of plant medicine these days and how, you know, these are indigenous plants that are supposed to be used in ceremony. They're supposed to be respected in a way that the plant calls you and, and, and you spend a bit of time beforehand, you know, writing out intentions and really kind of looking deeper and I think we've kind of lost that because people now are kind of, oh, that's quite trendy and quite cool. I'll go and try that. And then they go and have these experiences and they have no idea what it is 
really that they're that they're doing. And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, the 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 emergence of the social media movement and you know people seeing things and you know oh, that looks great I'll go over there or that looks great I'll go over and do that or I'll move here and I'll move there or you know and I, I think we're losing a real essence we're gaining lots of things like I'm not I'm not going to argue with that we have gained so much but, but I think we've kind of we've, we've lost more than we've gained that's a really really interesting point I would say the biggest thing is capitalism personally i think that's i think it's you know i think all all roads lead back into one one destination almost i think the speed of our modern existence the, the profit maximization just seems to not really care about other human beings it seems to be almost like a a thing that directs even those shareholders in a way i think it's it's something that possesses them and for you know it's just so like it, it feels like that sometimes like profit maximization leaves no stone unturned and it's advanced towards whatever endless growth like you know so it has to go to the moon then it has to go to mars and then it has to keep going because it just eats up everything that's the truth and i think like that that side of our nature that greed that it has its roots that that the same thing is the reason why we're not living the way we did when when we first our modern ancestors first evolved say two hundred thousand years ago because that sort of a desire to push boundaries and things like that is the reason most likely why we became came across the wheel and agriculture and fire mm-hmm. and then all the rest of it. You know, we do have that insatiable kind of curiosity in our species. Yeah. It's probably our We're the most evolved species. Yeah, our most definable trait is arguably our curiosity, I think, like mm-hmm. and our desire to kind of push boundaries in that way. So I, I completely it's a very, very interesting point. I think I capitalism, you know, what it did was obviously it overthrew the, the hereditary aristocracies and whatnot. You know, so it did some everything's a double edged sword. It did some good things, That's, some bad yeah. things, but it's whenever that was happening and whenever it was like becoming the new system we we didn't have the environmental concerns we had back then so it's now proven itself defunct now so we need a new system as well and and, and, and you know that's just you said something so key there do you know like what is happening right now underneath our noses right in front of our faces that we are not being curious enough about we need to get fierce with curiosity when we look back 20 years ago 30 years ago and we go what why did we not see, like, for example, I went to this talk with a woman called, called Suzanne Zadiki, and she was talking about, you know, you know, fierce curiosity. And what she was saying is, we used to, we used to belt our kids at school, you know, with a leather belt across the hands or with a cane. Some schools in England used to grow the cane out the back and the child got marched out to the back of the school, picked the cane, came back, and we allowed this, right? Now, you would think that that was, there was some politician somewhere, there was some educational guru somewhere, there was somebody somewhere at a level to be able to create change who would go, hang on a minute, what are we doing? No, it was a mother from Glasgow who said, you will not cane my son. And the son went to school and he got caned and she took it to the human court, the court of human rights. And she pushed and pushed and pushed. And then we brought in this, you know, oh, yeah, that is actually quite bad. And we look back now, that was the 1980s, mid 80s. That wasn't that long ago. So, you know, the point she makes is what's happening right now underneath our nose that we that is causing massive issues with mental health, that's causing massive issues with physical health, that's causing because the mental health and the physical health is so linked. What 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 was happening right under our noses? And I think you know you're saying about capitalism, consumerism is not that far behind it because we just want more and more and more and difference and this and that and them, and we believe that life is about gathering, you know, materialistic stuff. 
and, and, and it's not. Life's about the moments. And, you know, what Gabor Mate's book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, and what he talks about is a Buddhist philosophy where, you know, these ghosts are these, like, entities and they have, you know, small heads and big long necks and big fat bellies. And it doesn't matter how much they consume, they're never full. They're always wanting to consume more and more and more. And I was really impacted about a year ago. I seen this really powerful picture and it was two children sitting back to back. And one of them was about five and he was so skinny and had ripped clothes and stuff. It was a black and white image. It was so skinny and, you know, ripped clothes and was like eating like what looked like bread or something. And at his back was a baby who was maybe about, I don't know, 14 months or something, chewing on the side of an iPad. And it just really showed, you know, the 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 real distance between so many of us on this planet. You know, there's such a disparity in who has what, and you know, it, it just, yeah. I think, you know, I think consumerism is, is is a massive thing for for us as well. I think it's one of the things that stands out to be about consumerism, which is really an offshoot of capitalism and where capitalism is inevitably yeah. headed. I think like it's endless desire for growth and just to own everything almost in a way. I think. One of the things that really stands out to me about consumerism is like whenever you purchase a new phone, right? Or you purchase a new book or you purchase, you know, you're constantly bombarded. If you have a smartphone or you're constantly bombarded with, oh, you should buy this today. And it listens to you while you're doing it. It listens to you and it sends the very thing you were talking about, which is something that freaks me out. Like there's a great <laughs> book on that. There's a great book on that. Shoshana Zubov, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, just terrifying. But I think but that's, that's like a tangent. But yeah, I think like one of the things that stands out to me about consumerism is that it's almost like in the very first moment you buy that that phone, you're really excited, right? That like you buy that book, and once you get it, you realize, oh, it's just another item. Oh, I'll read the book. I'll play with the phone. But it's that moment. It's almost like a moment of of zen for a lot of people, who like when they buy that first item, it's the excitement and the anticipation of getting the item. So maybe that's the dopaminergic reward system yeah. in play there. But so it's really just messes up with that, like that whole you buy it, you're really excited for it to arrive. When I I did the same for ages. I looked at Amazon. I was when when's it going to arrive? And when's it going to arrive? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's left the station in Belfast now. It's coming to me. But when you get it, it's like. Okay. You know, that I think consumerism is built on that hunger. But I think people hunger for the moment before they get that item. I think buying that item, you know, the process of buying that item and waiting for it, it's that m- moment and that situation that they want to yeah. last forever. And I think that's really, really powerful because I think that's what consumerism <laughs> preys on almost. You know, and, and what you're talking and what you're talking about there is classic addiction. Do you know, like when when you a gambler a gambler's chasing the thrill. You know, a gambler could win a, a million pounds and then go, I'm going to put it all in the next race. It's not about the money. It's about that dopamine, as you say, it's about that that reward circuitry. It's about that and, and you know, and the two biggest addictions that we live with in the society is money and power. You know, people become so addicted because at some point in their life, and again, this is going back to trauma, at some point in their life, they have felt powerless. They have felt, you know, when we when we perceive ourselves to be in a situation that the meaning that we've given it is that we are, our, our, our ultimate survival has been threatened and the landscape of the brain tells us in this moment, I am vulnerable. If we feel inescapable, what happens in the brain is, the amygdala, which is the fight or flight, opens up and produces what's called an amper receptor. And it sits on top of the amygdala. And in that moment, it goes 
takes a picture of what it sees, hears, feels, smells and tastes in that like a solid picture. And it's almost like these become meerkats that then sit on top of the amygdala and they meerkats are like, we are on it. If anything that's in this, almost like, if you can imagine like a black box on an aeroplane, if, if anything that's in this right now is in your environment again, I'm going to make you aware. So it could be that, you know, like, I don't know, it could be that you've been in a car crash and Bob Marley's playing on the radio. And then six months later, you're in the shopping centre looking to buy ice cream and you've got your head down looking at the ice cream. And just in the background is Bob Marley playing really quietly. And this meerkat goes, oh, here, that's one of the things. That's This is part of this threat. And what happens is for every one message that goes down the way, there's up to 20 messages come back up the way from the body. So if that one message goes down the way saying, oh, you're at threat, there's something in your environment here that was in that environment previously when you were at threat, we need to move to action. So you're in the shopping centre and you're like, it's a bit hot in here. Oh, really? Oh, my heart's, oh, I really do feel well and your hands are sweating. But the conscious mind's going, oh, what's here now? It must be about what's here now. So it kind of goes, well, it's the shopping centre. That part of the amygdala opens back up again. It takes in shopping centre, lots of people feeling warm. So now your meerkats are looking for all of that as well. And you go through, and all of this can go all the way back to when you were a child and something happened that allowed you to be unsafe in that moment. So we, we are constantly being driven by the need to be have agency for ourselves and that can really restrict us because you know having agency for ourselves is a great thing but when we use it to the detriment of ourselves and the people around about us then we start to look for more power we start to look for more success success is linked to finance so we're looking for more money we're always looking for these steps that tell us about significance and we all want to feel significant every single one of us but some reach a level of significance I mean for example I remember years ago hearing a story about Trump and he had and I'm not sure if this is true or no but when I remember hearing it and thinking it's a great story he had went to Tony Robbins and you know Trump has this huge history of going from boom to bust boom to bust boom to bust and and one of the things he says to, you know, Tony was like, what is your motivator? Because, you know, in neurolinguistic programming, there's a, 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 a law like that says, law that says you're always either moving towards pleasure or away from pain. And he had said, you know, being poor is the biggest motivator. Do you know, I'm never ever going to be poor because he had, you know, in his lineage, there had been poverty and stuff. So he was focusing on, I'm never going to be poor again. I'm never going to be poor again. He was going forward, he was going this way and creating all this mass wealth, but then he was losing it all because his belief was, his, his, his motivation was not to be poor. And Tony Robbins worked with his motivational filter and says to him, if you could be anything, what would it be? And he said, I would love to be the most powerful man in America. And the history tells you the rest. So I think when we, you know, especially when you look at, you know, you don't have to look any further than that example of Trump to be looking at, you know, the impact of trauma. But a lot of us think trauma has to be you know, a bombing or a stabbing or a war or a car crash or trauma is the disconnection from self. It's where we've made our connection to other people more important than the connection we have to ourself. And and so many of us do that. So many of us live with trauma on, on multiple different levels, but we just don't recognise it as such because we believe it has, or we're busy going, oh, you think that's bad? Wait till you hear what happened to Johnny up the road. Do you know what happened to me is nothing compared to that. So I'm not bothered what happened to Johnny up the road. This is your experience. What did you make that mean for you? 
so it's it's a huge topic, I think, trauma. And I think right now in the last sort of five years, there's so many things that, you know, become trauma-informed and people go along to a, a training for a couple of days or they read a Gabor Mate book or a Bessel van der Kolk book and they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm trauma-informed. And there's so much more to it than that. Yeah, no, completely agree. I think the Trump example is pretty interesting because I think obviously Trump himself he actually grew up quite privileged, you know, he got a loan from his dad and whatnot, mm-hmm. but that the fear of being poor makes sense because in many ways, like there were some descriptions of him as being like the distillation of all the worst aspects of the American character. Mm-hmm. I think it was Sam Harris. I said, I, I think, and if you think about America being the richest country in the world, it's obsessed with money. It's God is, is mm-hmm. the dollar bill. So like, it makes sense that he would have that obsession with not being poor because he was born. He doesn't want to lose that and be poor. You know, he's probably grown Mm -hmm. up with contempt, like for poor people in many ways, Mm -hmm. you know, so because he had lots of things handed to him on a plate. So I think, but like reading his history, there actually was like, because obviously people say, you know, he's a massive narcissist and stuff like that. And all that is true descriptively. But I think I remember reading about his history and there was actually a lot of emotional abuse by his father. Um, And so that's trauma in itself. He might've been privileged, but he was emotionally yeah. abused by his dad, you know, and he's, yeah. you know, never valued him, fired material things at him, but didn't really just, you just seen him as like, oh, carry on the empire and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I think like, it's a really, really interesting example. Uh, and I think this connection from self is, is something that I definitely resonate with in a way, because I think that's at the root of much dysfunction, I think, in the modern world, because we're so you're not allowed to, in the economic system we live in and in the cultural system we live in, it's almost like it's set up to make you unhappy with yourself so you keep pursuing more in a way. Nobody's allowed to be happy with yourself because if everyone was happy with themselves, the beauty industry would finish tomorrow. You know, the fitness industry would see a massive decline. You know, Absolutely. there'd be loads of things. There's loads of things really, really are, the pillars are upheld by the pillars of us continuing to be unhappy with ourselves and continue to be disconnected from who we are. So I think becoming a person who's in touch with say their true self in a way and the true self is really what can i give to the humanity that's outside of economics and job and all not discounting all those things we all have to get money to eat and whatnot but i think the problem is that we need to find out what it is you can give everyday human life you know so if you have a great sense of humor that's something that you can give to the world you know no one else has your sense of humor you have a unique sense of humor you know, and I find, I personally find having empathy and compassion is the best way to find your true self in a lot of ways, because when you interact with people in a non-transactional way, you know, it's, 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 you don't want anything from them. You're just caring for the other person. You're seeking yeah. to help them understand their perspective. They respond to you in a non-transactional way a lot of the time. And you begin to see what you can give outside of money, outside of how you look, outside of all the rest of it. So I think that's really, really important. And I think that the, the the flotation of this whole conversation has been fascinating. It's one of those ones where bombs go off in my brain and I really enjoy it. <laughs> but I said this to someone else. This is another one of them, so it's great. But I think there's a really interesting book called, it's called The Phantom God, written by a guy called John C. Withy. He's a neuroscientist and he puts forward the hypothesis that talks about a lot. It's very similar to a lot of what you talk about and how a lot of our mental experiences are so rooted in physiology and so rooted that we just don't even realize it. And he talks about the God experience, you know, when people have like this conversion and then they go into the religion and, and he says his hypothesis is that it's kind of, there's an innate neural network in the brain. And he talks about a load of different areas of the brain that are involved in it. And Mm -hmm. it's called an innate neural network. And his hypothesis is that 
the same innate neural network that expects infant cur, no, or that the infant has when it expects the mother's cur. So expect the infant has a, a neural network that expects the mother's closeness. Yeah. So like it's interesting, and he explores how even though God is this massive patriarchal father figure, he's in many ways is an ideal father figure, the historical God of the monotheistic religions. Anyway, you know, he's an ideal father figure. He explores the story like in the context of a lot of stories of people who say come from you know, a lot of trauma, say there's a broken home or the father's left them. And, you know, there's a disruption in that network and that network remembers something. So whenever they, they read about God, they then have like this, like kind of, what would you say? Epiphany, as you said, where it's like, Oh, it cares about me. So God, this, the God father image replaces the absent father. That's why mm-hmm. a lot of these figures. So Jesus didn't know his biological father. Who else is there? Muhammad didn't know his biological father. And Muhammad didn't know that his father at all. Jesus had Joseph, who was his legal father, but he didn't mm-hmm. know his biological one. A lot of the heroes of Greece didn't know their fathers. Zeus's mm-hmm. father was Zeus, mortal woman, Perseus the same. So that sort of, you know, that, that sort of story, I think, and like that sort of kind of really grandiose kind of conversion and whatnot mm-hmm. is rooted in really in a neural mechanism. And I think it's a really convincing hypothesis, to be honest. It's um absolutely you know, really, really, really fascinating. I highly recommend that book. And I think it ties into what you said about, you know. So much of our mental dysfunction is rooted physically. We need to get in touch with our bodies again, you know, and kind of be like, and see what our body's telling us. Ignore the abstract mind, which, you know, yeah. we have such a powerful abstract mind, but I think it, that's all so fascinating. I think it ties in really neatly to what you were, all you were talking about there. And, and I think, you know, when we've experienced an event, you know, we can believe our body is not to be trusted. We can believe our body betrayed us. We can believe. So, I mean, when you look at when you look at internal family systems work, so you look at the work of Dick Schwartz and what he states is that, or what his kind of model is based on is that if you can think, say you're, I don't know, 18 months old and you're out in the back garden and you fall and you cut your leg. It's the first time you've seen blood and it's the first time you've felt pain like that. And you come in and you're like, you come in and your mum's in the kitchen and you're like, and you're screaming and there's blood and your mum's like, now your mum who has pain within her mirrors this and sees the pain within you, her offspring and goes, whoa. So the mum goes, and and like I am a mum and this is like a real mum guilt story I'm going to tell. And the mum goes, stop crying. Come on, stop crying. You'll be okay. It's okay. Stop. Stop crying. For goodness sake, stop. Stop crying. Here's a lollipop. Come on. Stop. Stop the tears. Look, be, come on. Be a big boy. Like, you don't hear stop crying, be a big boy. You hear there's no room for your emotion here. Oh, you pack that in. So that overwhelming emotion then gets met with, oh, my goodness, I'm about to lose my attachment here. So that authentic, that, that authentic drive to be who you are in the moment suddenly goes, I'm losing my connection here. So the overwhelming emotion gets pushed down by this part that develops, pops up in that moment that goes, okay, okay. And we push it down in the body. We push all that overwhelming emotion. So then dad comes in that night. And mum says, oh, he fell today, didn't you? But you were a good boy, weren't you? You were a big boy. And I give you a hug and blah, blah. So the following week, you fall in the garden, you cut your other leg and you come in and you go, because <laughs> now you're operating from this part that helps you to be attached to the main caregiver. The authentic drive, the overwhelming emotion is instantly pushed down. So you walk in and mum says, oh, look, all oh, of you fallen. Oh, look at you being a brave boy. Oh, come on. Here, get a hug. 
and then it starts. So there you are at one and a half years old and the belief is I cannot be authentic with this emotion. That emotion might be fear, might be pain, might be sadness. I cannot be authentic with this emotion because I will lose my attachment to the to 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 my caregiver, to my to my my survival. And then you know we become like you know you get into your 20s or your 30s and you have this emotion that comes up and the body instantly shuts it down. So you start to become numb, you can't feel anything, or you start to really feel everything and you're trying your hardest to, so your nervous system then starts to go into these different states. So you can be in, you know, a socially engaged stage where you're sitting chatting with someone and someone says something in a certain tone of voice or does something or talks about something and instantly your nervous system's activated and you're up and you're in a sympathetic stage where everything's kind of looking for threat and you'd and your whole system can change going right back to that early experience that happened in the garden without you having any idea of it. And then there's the 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 the, the opposite of that is where well not even the opposite of it, but sometimes our biggest traumas is what we didn't receive in childhood. So we maybe had the house, we had the home, we had the parents, we had all of these different things, but emotionally there was no one there to hold us. We were maybe sent to boarding school. You know, there, there's, you know, maybe your, your experiences were invalidated by stop telling tales or, you know, there's so many things that we we, we always put, no, we always, we, we mostly put adult thinking on childhood experiences. I mean, I was working with a guy the other day there and he said, you know, I probably deserved it because, because like he was talking about being hit by a Hoover, the, the, the pole of a Hoover. And he says, I probably deserved it because it was a wee shit. And I was like, is that, is that as an adult? Or is that, you know, how did that child feel? How did you feel as a child? And we tend to skip over these things because we kind of go, Ack. but it's because we've pushed it down so far. And sometimes through total suppression and taking into account you know, we've mostly for the last however many, you know, 50, 60 years, you know, our, our system's been driven by a medical model that's that's driven by a pen and a prescription pad that is about suppress the emotion. If you can push it, just push it down and get through the day, push it down and get through the day. Now, how about you go straight to the pain? You go straight to where the wound is. And I mean, wound, that's the Greek word for trauma. If you go straight to where the wound is and clear the wound, then it means that you know, you're no longer managing symptoms because if you're managing symptoms, you spend your life managing symptoms. When I feel like this, I have to do this. When I feel like that, if you go straight to the wound, clear the root, the root cause of it, then it means that you can start to really live life in a more connected, more kind of awake kind of state. Wonderful, wonderful. What is a message that you would give to the younger generation coming through now regarding um, mental health? Say they're, you say you're a 14, 15 year old boy or girl, you know, what, what, um, they don't know anything about this. Like I didn't know anything about this at 14, 15, I'm too busy gaming away, Call of Duty or something. But what do you think is the, the most important message you think you would give to them regarding everything we talked about today? What, if, if they could take away one thing that we've talked about today, what do you think it would be? You would yeah, you really want actually to? Gonna, I was doing a session just before I came on here. I I'm going to read you a quote. This is a quote that I am. I've spent a couple of years studying compassionate inquiry with Gabo Mati, and he quotes A.H. Almas quite a lot. And he, he he said this quote, and I went back and listened, and I went back and listened, and I went back and listened because it resonated so deeply with me, and I think it resonates to 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 anybody. And I've added extra different things in here that was along my thinking of what was going on. And the quote says, "You say you call it hell." Hell is actually just the emotions that we cannot handle. The surest way to go to hell is to resist going to hell. 
You see, your conflicts, all the difficult things, your problematic situations in your life are not chance or haphazard. They are yours, specifically yours, designed specifically for you by a part of you that loves you more than anything else. The part that loves you more than anything else has created roadblocks. These roadblocks will lead you to yourself. It will go to extreme measures to wake you up. It will make you suffer greatly if you do not listen. What else can it do? That's its purpose. So you can look at all your problems from the perspective of the issues themselves as difficulties to get rid of as fast as possible with the least amount of struggle. Or you can look at them from the perspective of the guide in you who's guiding you to yourself. The most difficult things that happen to you on the deepest levels are actually the most compassionate things. There's usually something that you need to learn and it's not conscious. Thoughts and beliefs that are not yours but have been eaten away at you since you were a small child will impact your immune system and your overall health. We are all asleep, that's how we function. The Buddha was asked, are you a god or some kind of angel? And he simply replied, no, I'm awake. Always remember, we have to work very hard to wake up. And I just loved that, Do you know, like, and, and I read it time to time. And I always go through it, you know, like people that I'm working with. And there's a part here that says, you know, the most important thing with essence is the connection to self. And this is much more important than if your mother or father wanted you or not. If they gave you the care and attention that you needed or not. We only suffer when we are not free. We have two fundamental needs for survival. Attachment, which is a drive for closeness and proximity for the purpose of being taken care of or for the purpose of taking care of others. And authenticity. This is the connection to our own gut feelings, the sense, the essential self. If we're not connected to ourself, we just don't survive. However, if these two things come into conflict, we forego our connection to self in order to survive, as it threatens our very attachment with the others around us. So you see, it becomes much safer to sacrifice our own gut feelings than to give up or challenge the attachment we have with others. So authenticity actually becomes terrifying. As the belief is, if I am authentic, I will lose my attachments, I won't be loved, and people will not connect with me. So we make ourselves into what other people demand of us. So you learn early on to be your true self as a threat to any relationship you will have. And it's just so powerful. So my advice to any young people who listen to this is to be yourself. Dr. Seuss wrote a poem and he says, you are you than you. This is truer than true. There is no one alive more you than you. Very, very profound. I think that's a, a really, really fantastic way to, to finish off the conversation there. I think that's a really, I think a lot of people will listen to that and be like, wow, yeah, no, I'll take that away from it. Because I think that is a really profound quote. There's no question about it. And I think it resonates much with me as well. Because there's definitely been experiences like me with anyone else where I felt, oh, this is like, this is how could this happen to me? But at the time, you're like, oh, this is shit. How did this happen to me? Sort of yeah. thing. But looking back in reflection, you're like, I wouldn't have been me without that experience in a way i would have been living a lie almost unless it happened to me so yeah no and that's, wonderful. I, think, I, th I think the more we can kind of i think they can the more we can embrace that what we go through is designed to wake us up if that's the only line that you take away is like you know like this is about and again going back to you know life is so much more comfortable now than it has ever been ever been for us you know even going back to things like you know windows in our houses double glazed windows in our houses fires in our homes central heating in our homes like we have we have so much we have so much comfort 
and and we never we, we never used to have this you know we and as soon as we have a, a, a tad of discomfort it's kind of like I must get rid of this as soon as possible but you know like comfort creates safety and people talk about you know creating safe spaces I think the most important thing is to create brave spaces because a brave space allows you to step out of that safe space allows you to step out of that comfort and and that takes courage and and courage is the you know courage is the the forefather to confidence and confidence is the thing that leads us on to do on all these other things brilliant thank you so much thank you so much for this great conversation barbara and ryan if you would like to join and share your story please email us or reach out on our social media channels you will find all the info in the podcast description see you next time